Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with David Loy. David, how are you doing? Well, thank you. Very happy to join you. Thanks for the invitation. Glad to have you here. And uh, you were recommended by past guest Carl Eric Fisher, who saw you speak at the Brooklyn Zen Center. Uh, how long ago was that? If Do you remember? Oh, that's a good question. Well, it was pre-COVID, so I would guess something like four years ago. Sorry to wait so long, <laughs> but glad to meet you now. And I'll read a bit of your bio and then jump into what, what brought me to you. Uh, so David Loy is a professor, writer, and Zen teacher in the Sanbo Zen tradition of Japanese Zen Buddhism, prolific author, books in many languages, uh, articles in major journals, uh, Buddhist magazines, scholarly journals, lots of videos online. Uh, you lecture nationally and internationally on various topics. Okay, so here's what brought us together is focusing primarily on the encounter between Buddhism and modernity, what each can learn from each other, and especially concerned about social and ecological issues. Uh, a popular recent lecture is, and there's a link here that I'll put in the notes, to Healing Ecology, a Buddhist perspective on the eco-crisis, which argues that there is an important parallel between what Buddhism says about our personal predicament and our collective predicament today in relation to the rest of the biosphere. And then I jumped down to the bottom of, the, of it because I thought very interesting is that unless he's traveling, every Friday morning, David leaves an online meditation, 35 minutes, followed by a brief Dharma talk starting at 8 a.m. Colorado Mountain Time, and it's free and everyone is welcome. So I had to put that part in. <laughs> Thank you for it. Thanks for the plug. Oh, wait a minute. It's Friday morning. You <laughs> we did it this morning. Did yeah. you? It must have been a couple hours ago for you. That's right. We ended, uh, well, it started at 8 here, so it's now just about 11. So we ended almost two hours ago. Yeah. I'm curious, how did this morning's go? Oh, it, they almost always go the same. You know, we had between seven and 80, 70 and 80 people online. We, we sat together for 35 minutes, and then I gave a little dharmet, which is this new term for like a very short dharma talk. And in this case, I was, you know, offering a, a Buddhist story uh, and then also comparing it with a, a Christian story that Jesus told about. Um, and then also, curiously, there's much the same story also in the Islamic tradition. So I was just uh, commenting on that. Well, now I, my own curiosity is going to drive us off the rails just as we begin, because <laughs> I saw you talking about something, and you may know more about this than most, because you talked about it, of the actual people in ancient Greece talking to the actual people in ancient India, and there being a contact between, I don't know, Stoics and early Buddhists? Uh, very likely. I mean, a lot of this is still speculation, but there, there seems to be pretty strong sort of circumstantial report. It, it does seem that, uh, you know, there was more sort of intercourse between ancient Greece and India. And, and it does make sense when you look at some of the teachings that they could easily have sort of cross-fertilized. Is this not? Is this fascinating to everyone who learns it? I think so. I mean, there, there's a wonderful book on the topic, although it's upstairs in my bedroom, so I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, but uh, there's been some really good scholarly work on this uh, sort of theory or idea. Yeah. Now I'm going to tear myself away from that as much as I want to delve into that, and I'm going to ask <laughs> you your background because you're. Um, I, I don't think you grew up learning Zen as a child. And I think you, I think you did a lot of philosophy. Can you share your history and how, how you think of yourself, if you don't mind? Yeah, sure. Uh, um, I was raised a Christian, but sort of lost its interest in it pretty early and majored in philosophy in college. That included a year of studying British analytic philosophy at King's College London. But the main thing I learned that year is that I wasn't interested in British analytic philosophy. So I ended up you know, focusing on existentialism, phenomenology. And frankly, it's not such a big jump from that to something like Zen, uh, especially back in the old days when we were all reading D.T. Suzuki and Alan Watts. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, what happened to me, I, I was one more, I mean, just looking at me, I'm obviously a child of the 60s, right? And the psychedelic revolution of the 60s, I think pretty clearly led to the explosion of interest in Zen and other sort of spiritual centers in the 70s. And I, and I kind of followed along with that. I was a draft resistor against the war right after college, but then I was out in Hawaii and I got connected with the Zen center out there. And, and once that connection happened, 
once I, I started meditating pretty seriously with that group, that became the focus of my life. And uh, one thing led to another. Uh, after several years in Hawaii, I also, uh, after, after a spell in Singapore, I ended up uh, working with the same Zen master who visited Hawaii, Yamada Koan. And I completed the koan study with him in the uh, late 80s. When you say completed the koan study, is that, I feel like that's a certain number of koans and, and interaction between you and, and the, the teacher after each one. How long of a process is that? Is it the same for everyone or is it different, wildly different? And do you mind sharing what that experience is like? Not at all. I mean, it's usually, it's usually much the same. It requires lots and lots of one-on-ones with the teacher. So a lot of it depends on how close you are to the teacher and how, uh, how intimately you can work with him or her. Uh, basically, the way it works, there's something like 600 koans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once you've sort of passed a few, the basic idea is you've had some experience, some taste of awakening, even if it's a small glimpse. And the koans just sort of help you clarify in principle, help you clarify and expand that. So, you know, I just went through that whole curriculum, which involved uh, miscellaneous koans, and then there's four books of koans that are sort of traditional, which we work through. Is that a major decision to devote yourself? I mean, I, I'm, I'm connecting this with getting a PhD in physics, which is, you know, a major commitment and putting off almost everything else in life. And um, rooted in... Just, uh, I mean, for me, physics is the study of nature and, and its most basic, elemental, and but really, it's 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 an for me an aesthetic practice of, of finding more and more beauty. Some might mm. see it as something to apply to uh, technology or engineering, but to me, it was really just finding more and more beauty. Was it something like? Was it a big decision to go that far? Or maybe or maybe you just took one step and each step afterward and you're like, oh, let's do the next thing too. Or maybe something else entirely. Well, pretty much at the beginning. I mean, in between Hawaii and Japan, I lived in Singapore for six years where I was teaching. I had a master's degree at that point in philosophy from University of Hawaii. And while teaching there, uh, you know, I was also thinking, reading, writing, and I ended up writing a dissertation on... Uh, well, the topic was non-duality, which is, you know, an essential theme, an essential concept in a lot of spiritual traditions, certainly including Buddhism. And so basically what it came down to, I was very fortunate that uh, I was able to combine the Zen practice pretty intensively, especially living in Japan, uh, with, you know, seeing the teacher sometimes almost every day. Uh, and then also I had this sort of philosophical, academic, intellectual background where I had been, you know, studying and writing on uh, comparative philosophy, but especially Buddhist philosophy. And, and so I feel very fortunate that I had those sort of two angles, which very much uh, supplemented each other, helped each other. Was there tension while doing it of like giving a lot up, or was there were you so enthralled with it? I mean, to me, there was a, it was a, sometimes. No question I was doing the right thing and sometimes feeling like, what am I doing? There's no future in this. And uh, was it hard or was it natural or how did, how, what was that experience like? Uh, it was a little bit lonely, let's say, because, um, you know, within the academic philosophy world, I mean, you're, it, it's not generally accepted to sort of bring in your meditation experiences, right? Mm-hmm. And likewise, on the other side, Zen is very much non-intellectual. In fact, it sometimes sort of goes over the edge and becomes anti-intellectual. Uh, and uh, so what I was doing was, was very unusual. And uh, as I said, pretty much lonely. But for the most part, I felt pretty comfortable doing it, following my own path. But there wasn't much support to, on either side to combine the two, is what I'm saying. So lonely because you're off the beaten path and t- taking a path that others weren't on. So, okay. Uh, thanks for sharing. And yeah, happy to do it. So you focus a lot on sustainability now, and I don't know that that's the word I would use. I focus on ecodharma, which is the sort of ecological implications of Buddhist and other spiritual teachings, and sustainability is part of that for sure. Yeah. Can you yeah can you clarify that difference? Because um, 
I was just diving because I do see the word ecodharma with you a lot, and I don't want to. I want to understand what I what the the distinction. Okay, um, well, ecodharma is it's a fairly new term. I mean, it's it's only been around probably for a decade, but it's it really involves a sort of extending Buddhist teachings, Buddhist perspectives, using them to look at the ecological crisis. So it combines dharma, which is in this context it means you know teachings, mm -hmm. Buddhist teachings, the Buddhist dharma, with this ecological focus. And so not only did I write a book on ecodharma, I give a lot of talks, but we've also, uh, along with some other friends, we founded the Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Center up in uh, up in the mountains above Boulder. So you know it's not only focused on sustainability. But I guess sustainability in the large sense of sort of what can we learn from Buddhism and other spiritual traditions that can help us understand and respond appropriately to the larger ecological crisis. And not just carbon emissions and climate change, but, you know, loss of biodiversity, various types of pollution, and so forth. And we see, Does that make any sense or help? Yeah. And a follow-up question. When you say, what can we learn from it? Is it is that what can Buddhists learn from it? What can everyone learn from it? Are you bringing this to uh, a Buddhist audience, to the world, other? <laughs> mm -hmm. No, good, great question, and the, and the answer is both. And um, I I think it's fair to say our main audience so far has been Buddhists who are interested in extending their individual practice in this direction. You know, it's like the focus traditionally of Buddhism, and I'm not sure this is what the Buddha himself taught, but certainly the way the tradition developed, mm -hmm. very much individual, personal, focused on my own mind, my own delusions, my own enlightenment. And so it, in some ways, it kind of encourages the sort of individualism, hyper-individualism that Americans can get into. Um, but there's also these these other elements within the tradition that sort of uh, can be developed and and used to look at our present situation, uh, not only, but especially the ecological challenge. So it also works the other way around in the sense that, for example, we have hosted up there at our Ecodharma Center, we've had Extinction Rebellion people mm -hmm. and other eco-activists. And uh, I think it's pretty clear that they have found it very helpful. You know, I mean, eco-activism like XR, it's, it's pretty tough. It tends to burn you out. But if you can ground your engagement in some kind of contemplative practice that sort of helps with equanimity, that, that can be very helpful. There's an interesting parallel and, and uh, contrast. One of the things I've, I've observed is that I think that before something like 100 years ago, Everybody, roughly speaking, everyone in the world had access to solitude in nature. You could simply walk to a forest or at least be among trees or a beach without airplanes overhead, without traffic, without honking. I, I guarantee over the course of this conversation, there's going to be honking from somewhere and that we can't avoid it. And yet, so I think traditions from before, to some degree, could take for granted access that now not only do we not have I mean, billions don't have that access and even very rich people have a, a, a shadow of that access i mean i'm here in greenwich mm -hmm. village we have lovely tree-lined streets but it's hardly a forest mm -hmm. and i don't know to what extent traditions from the past might have taken for like why bother <laughs> Uh, putting a value on something that is obviously there. How could it possibly not be there? Trees and, and sunsets and uh, clean water. And yet, it seems like nature is always a deep part of all of these things. It's almost like you couldn't help but... I mean, when you talk about meditation, you talked about meditation, you talked about psychedelics. And I think of these... People often connect these with nature. I think we always took for granted and now it's not so we can't so take it for granted i'm not sure if i'm if i have a question here uh have you observed this as well well i think it's an important point 
And, you know, what you're saying about this exposure to nature, that's exactly right. Even up at our Ecodharma Center, we've got a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, uh, nonetheless, in the distance, you can sometimes hear traffic, especially motorbikes. Uh, and, you know, there's no way to completely avoid. Uh, the, it's very hard to find somewhere where you won't occasionally see an airplane sort of streaking overhead, although that's usually not a disturbance to the same degree. But here's what I find interesting, Josh. If you look at so many of the great founders of, of spiritual traditions, the kind of transformative experience they had in so many ways, they go out into the natural world by themselves and something happens to them. I mean, certainly in the case of the Buddha, right? He, according to the legend, he was this prince, wealthy, comfortable, but he goes off on a spiritual quest and he, you know, he eventually meditates by himself under a Bodhi tree and has this experience. But it's not only the Buddha. Uh, I mean, think of, um, think of Jesus. What does he do right after his baptism with John the Baptist? He goes off into the desert by himself for 40 days and 40 nights. Something happens to him there. Muhammad, the story of the cave. You know, the Quran was supposedly given to him by an archangel when he's off by himself praying, meditating in a, in a remote cave. Moses going off by himself on the mountaintop. I and mean, it's like there's something really powerful there about getting away from society for a while and opening up to what's there. And then there's some new message, new transformative teaching that then they bring back to society. It's how do we put together the, this technique that I described earlier that hopefully we'll do in a minute of, of the Spodic method is, is to connect, is to restore that connection for people that everyone used to have before, I think, of the value of nature. I think a lot of people grow up today without a meaningful experience of nature or actually, I take that back, always a meaningful experience, but often... I don't know. How, I don't know what the appropriate measure is, but something less than what people had before, for sure. And that if we haven't had that experience, it's very easy to neglect its value because we don't know its value. Exactly. In in my own case, I mean, I didn't really connect with nature until after college. Mm -hmm. You know, I was a draft resistor for a while, uh, and then I'm living in Hawaii, basically out of my backpack for a couple years. Uh, in, you know, in and out of some of the cities, but a lot of it by myself. And so the connection happened quite late, but the important point is it, it can happen even when one is an adult. And I do want to add that that's an important part of our Ecodharma retreats that I've been co-teaching up at our center. Uh, we were outside all the time, weather permitting. You know, we're, we're meditating, we're, we're walking, and we also include a two-day, two-night solo where people go off by themselves uh, you know, with a tent and a backpack. And it's, I suppose you could, uh, you know, compare it to sort of something that indigenous traditions have done. But it's very much encouraging people to sort of, you know, don't bring an agenda with you, but uh, open up, see what the place, what the trees, what the meadow, what the flowers, what the animals have to offer. And there's something powerful there. There's something transformative that can help us sort of cut through or let go of the social preoccupations, urban preoccupations that otherwise, you know, capture us. And, you know, obviously we need to do a lot of things there, but it's important to get in touch with some other aspects, some other side of things, as you're saying. What, what's your read on, there's a lot of people who have never had an experience like that. What happens to a human, of course there's wide variation, but a human who has no has never spent more than a couple hours in nature, and it's always been some curated experience. Because mm. I think of, on, on the scale of billions, that's happening for the first time ever. And I think people don't recognize it. You know, th that that's a great question. Uh, and I, I don't know that I'm in a position to answer it. I mean, I can say that up at our Ecodharma Center, before people go off in the solo, you know, we do a lot of prep work. Mm -hmm. As I said, we're, we've already spent lots of time meditating and doing things outside. There's a certain sort of preparation. And also, most of the people, maybe all of them, they're not complete beginners. They're people who have quite a bit of 
meditation experience usually. So it's a sort of self-selected set that doesn't quite fit into your question, which is why I don't know that I can really answer it. Yeah, I'm thinking of, of so many people just don't know what they're missing. And I think, mm -hmm. I think it must contribute at least to a high level of anxiety and isolation and confusion. Let's say the flip side. So people come to you and you bring to them eco-dharma. Is, is that a fair way to, to describe? Or you introduce them to a practice or a perspective? Mm -hmm. Well, eco-dharma involves a lot of meditation, as I said, as much as possible outside, mm -hmm. weather permitting. Uh, there's also a kind of a workshoppy element where we're, you know, we're, we're talking. It's not just a nature retreat. It's sort of getting in touch with what's happening ecologically in the world. And a lot of that is uh, getting in touch with our own grief about what's happening. And, and it's, I, you know, I think for many of us, that grief is, is repressed. You know, we're, we're, we're not sure what to do mm -hmm. with it. But if we repress it, I think it all too easily transforms into despair, which is this head trip, hope, despair about the future. So what we try to do is the, the, the time in the natural world together, living together 24-7, sort of helps us create a kind of a group spirit where at a certain point we can all come together and, and share our deepest feelings about what's happening to the natural world. Because as long as we're repressing them, you know, it's, it's hard to move forward. And so that's an essential part of our Ipagama retreats. From a, I'm going to make a joke that I don't know if it'll make any sense, but a quote that I came across from a great Zen master, Abraham Lincoln. I don't know. If that, anyway, <laughs> he said, nothing damages you more than to do something that you believe is wrong. And he didn't say, you know, nothing damages you more than owning slaves. It was this internal conflict, which I think is what you're talking about, the suppression, the denial, that we, we just will do anything to avoid facing that internal conflict because it's brutal to face up to, I did something that I knew was wrong, but it was comfortable. It was convenient. I wanted to, I wanted to go to that party in Miami for the weekend and the flight was only 50 bucks. And I think it's, so you expose that you, I mean, you, you, what can you talk about the, the facing the, the, the grief that you described? Well, yeah, the, I think I already made what I think is maybe the most essential point, how easily we confuse grief with despair. You know, from a Buddhist perspective, especially despair and hope, they're, they're kind of a dualistic, head-trippy thing, thinking about the future, bringing us out of the present moment. Whereas grief is something more bodily. And I think the, the, the grief, well, when I was in London some years ago, I saw a memorial, this little memorial for the victims of 9-11. All, all it said was, um, grief is the price we pay for love. Mm -hmm. You know, if we repress our grief, it's in some way we're, we're repressing or, or grief is the homage. Grief is the, the respect we pay to what we love and what's happening to what we love. And so that, that, I mean, I think that can be so transformative because it can cut through so much of the bullshit of our lives. In you know, it, it can really help us focus and think, okay, if, as Noam Chomsky says, this is the most dangerous moment in human history, what does it mean for what I should be focusing on, my values, my projects? So, you know, I just, do I just want to think about making money or, or, or whatever? Or does it help reorient and make us really ask, What's the most important thing? What are the most important values at, at this point? And what are the results? Because I'm thinking a lot of people feel that way. And then they, I think a lot of people feel like they go down a, a couple checklists of like, well, the New York Times says I should do these 10 simple things. Okay. Mm. I did five. That's a good balance for me. But I don't see how I can, I'm not going to run for president. I'm not going to, but I, I and I'm, see, this is audio only. So they can't see that. I, I see on your face of like, yes, we get results. Uh, <laughs> and I think also the group effort, if we, if we don't go through that grief or sometimes shame or guilt mm. or fe those feelings that we want to suppress and deny, mm. we can't communicate with others. We just kind of, I think there's this implicit agreement among, mm -hmm. you know, us polluters of like, look, 
I can't, I'll, t- I'll say that what I do doesn't matter and you say what you doesn't matter and we won't challenge each other and then we all agree right. not to challenge each other and then we're okay. And not to talk about this. Saying that only governments and corporations can act, but I can't actually do that, which is a, I'm, I believe is a lie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's on the other side of it for people who attend your retreats? Well, it, you know, it, it's interesting be, because I wrote a book with the title Ecodharma, uh, I sometimes... You know, people sometimes contact me and they say, hey, you know, I really want to be what's called in Buddhism a bodhisattva, right? Somebody who's sort of doing what I can. But what should I do? And, and as I said in the book, Buddhism doesn't give us the answer. I mean, hey, Buddha, the Buddha lived 2,400 years ago. It's like the assumption that he's going to give us the answer to carbon emissions today. I mean, but Buddhism has a lot to tell us about how to do what we do. But what I actually have started now offering and suggesting is is a kind of three-part meditation or contemplation that I think can help people decide for themselves. Uh, basically, three questions. Number one, what do I have to offer? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, really taking time to think about that, you know, taking into account everything about my life, you know, one's age, one's health, one's responsibilities. Do you need money? Are you recovered? Where do you live? That So what do I have to offer? Number two, what are the good possibilities for me, given what I have to offer? And that might involve a bit of research. And then thirdly, sort of having digested and put those two on a shelf, as it were, uh, sort of, real, and, and this is where the meditation, I think, becomes especially important, sort of going deep within and asking sort of what calls to my heart, you know, mm-hmm. trying to get beyond ego and just what's, where does my passion, where does my love where does it want to go? How does it want to express itself? And um, I think some people have, have found this very helpful. And, uh, you know, as you suggest, obviously, reducing our own carbon footprint and ecological footprint, I think, is very much a part of it. Uh, otherwise, I think there's something very hypocritical about the whole process. But at the same time, uh, you know, most of us realizing that that's in and of itself insufficient, that we need to be engaged in other ways as well. I would say necessary, but yeah, not sufficient. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And it sounds like, um, do you have examples of stories of people? Actually, two questions. One is, are there examples of what's of someone who's gone through this and what's come of it for them? And also, that mm-hmm. sounds like personal questions, but it sounds like there's a group activity as well. Mm-hmm. So, so how does that merge into multiple people? Well, it's it's interesting because you can do that, you know, the process that I, that three-part question that I just offered, uh, I originally thought of it only in terms of individuals, but actually it's something that groups can do. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, sometimes there are, for example, there are Buddhist groups, and within the Buddhist group, there's a group of people who really want to be more engaged ecologically, and they can do this together. It can be discussions, you know, each question one by one. Um, the way we do it during our retreats is... Uh, we take time, we make sure there's time at the end for people to sort of come together and talk about how they want to move forward. You know, it's a little bit complicated because some of the people are local. And so in some ways, it's easier for people who are local to sort of coordinate and do things together. Like here in Colorado, of course, fracking is a, is a really big deal in terms of um, carbon emissions, and also the quality of the air. Amazingly, it's actually very poor here on the Front Range because of all the carbon emissions and cars as well, of course. Um, but, you know, even people who sort of scatter uh, back home, thanks to the marvels of modern technology, you know, they can keep connected and coordinate, and sometimes they continue to keep in touch and do things together. I think probably more often people return to their own sanghas and um, sort of talk about what they might do there. Um, I don't know. Is is that enough of an answer there, Josh? Uh, yeah. Although I have to say, I don't know if you saw the deflation that I felt when you described air. And Col- when I think of Colorado, one of the main thoughts is pristine uh, air. I'm sorry. And yeah. I'd rather know than not know if it's there. Yeah, I'm afraid so. I'm, we're talking primarily now about the, uh, the what's called the Front Range, the east side of the Rocky Mountains where I live. It, you know, it's Denver, Boulder. Uh, that, that's where they are located. Um, 
Now, there are places to the west, more on the west side of the mountains, where they have better air. But, you know, with all the forest fires we've been having in the west, mm. the reality is often the air isn't that good anywhere, sadly. I have to say, I think one of the most important skills that I've developed or continue to develop or try to develop is the magnitude of emotion of feelings of frustration or I, I don't think I would describe my feelings as depression, but anxiety and, and um, but to take the magnitude of that emotion mm. and find ways to con keep the magnitude and mm. connect it with, you know, at the, at the far end enthusiasm and, and determination and um, um, persistence and creativity and, you know, to come up with a vision that out of this and not out of acceptance and resignation and capitulation and abdication and things like that, mm -hmm. that it's, it's actually like a daily practice for me of, cause the litter on the streets in New, in New York is just, it's high and through the root, it's, it's going, getting higher. Huh. I think meditation is a big part of that. It's like there is suffering and there's a way out mm. and it's through a practice. I mean, I think that that's exactly right. And and to be honest, I think that's the most important thing that Buddhism has to offer. Not just meditation, but the kind of engagement that the, the Mahayana tradition encourages. I mean, maybe now is the time to say just a little bit about that, because I really do think that's the most important Buddhist contribution here. That uh, as Buddhism developed, uh, a new ideal developed. Uh, the way that the original Buddhism was understood, liberation is liberation from this world of suffering and its individual, one by one. But with Mahayana Buddhism, which you know is is the main Buddhism in Central Asia, East Asia, it, it's much more of a double path that bodhisattvas continue to work on their own personal transformation, sort of seeing through their own delusion of separate self. They continue to work on that, work for their own enlightenment, as it were. But they know that that's insufficient. Uh, they know that it's important to be engaged because at the core of, of the Buddhist enlightenment is the, realize, is the realization of non-separation, you know, that we're not separate from other people. So continuing to be preoccupied with one's own awakening is in a way reinforcing, at a certain point, reinforcing the delusion that my own well-being is separate from the well-being of other people from the well-being of, of, of the earth. And, and so, I mean, to me, this double path is, is very much the core of, of, of what Buddhism is offering, that we, we continue to work on our own minds and dealing with the issues that you were just talking about, you know, the, the moments we all feel of, of despair, of, of anger, of burnout. But, uh, that meditation can help us sort of cope with that and ground our engagement in the world, uh, which would come from those, for example, those kind of three questions that I was offering. And I see those two as, as reciprocal, right? In a way, I've I already made the point that I think as we really get more deeply and deeply into the personal practice and realize our non-separation, it seems to me it naturally flows into a concern for others, you know, in place of our old usual sort of self-preoccupation, what's in it for me, uh, that sort of transforms into sort of, okay, you know, we're all in this together, we're all part of each other, what can I do to, to make this a better world for, for everyone? And, and likewise, that engagement in the world as the XR people, you know, will acknowledge, that engagement in, in and of itself, it's, it's going to burn you out. It's tough. Uh, you know, I've been a member of XR groups here in, in Colorado, and without the kind of grounding in some kind of contemplative or meditation practice, I think it's really hard to sort of keep going uh, indefinitely. I'm trying to think of to what extent I'm, my meditation helps me in ways that I, I'm not thinking about. I mean, it certainly brings patience and understanding and awareness, mm. and that certainly... I don't feel burnt out, but I could feel burnt out. I, there's plenty of opportunity to feel burnt out. Mm -hmm. Or Well, maybe because you are meditating, as, as you had mentioned to me uh, earlier. 
I mean, I think a lot of the effects of meditation, we're not aware of them. They yeah. just, uh, you know, it's like they're, they're unconscious, subconscious, whatever, but it definitely changes our, our way of being in the world. It's so weird. People ask me what I do it for, why I do it, and I, I've never been able to answer anything remotely to what is, I can't put into words. I don't even know. It's not even like, like if, if I try to describe red to a blind person, like I, I don't know how to describe that, but it's like on a whole other level of, I don't know why I do it. And yet my life is better for it. Perfect. That's the best possible answer, Josh. You know, you don't know why you do it, really. I mean, like the Buddha himself, he said that the actions of an awakened person, he, he used the term nidasa, without expectation, without hope, it's even sometimes translated, you know. Um, and I think it's really important that we avoid the sort of gaining ideas that we can get into when we're doing something like meditation, you know, what I'm going to get out of it, which is getting in the way of whatever transformation that the meditation is naturally doing to us, you know. Meditation isn't something we do, it's something that, you know, it sort of happens to us, and uh, there's a fundamental mystery there. I don't, I don't think we know really what's going on, and we don't really know why we're doing it. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of the extent to which is my meditation, my meditation and living sustainably are going up in unison, but mm -hmm. that wasn't an intent. It wasn't by design. And I'm wondering if correlation doesn't apply, doesn't necessarily mean causation. And the causation could be one way, could be the other way, could be both, could be both resulting from something else. Mm -hmm. And I'm inclined to think that they're both feeding off, that they're both feeding off of each other. And, uh, Something else, there's a third thing that's going on at the same time, which is my volunteering. People keep saying, I don't have time for all that stuff. I have to, you know, I have to, but the more that I live sustain, the more that I move towards sustainability, the more free time I have, not the less. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing I, I have trouble explaining to people that they're like, but we should be more efficient. And some things, yes. But like when I read a bedtime story to my, to a niece or nephew, I don't speed read. <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I read slowly, you know, to cherish the moment. And there's some things to make efficient, I guess, but some things not. Mm -hmm. And I think to focus on the not efficient things somehow makes more time available, not less. But no one believes me. Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly right. You know, there's the old saying, if you want something to be done, give it to a busy person. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like they'll, they'll find time. They'll find time for it. And I think it's really important. Uh, I think there's a kind of a trap. We can get so caught up in this means ends thinking and um, sort of trying to get something out of everything that we're doing. And often the most happens when we're more just living in the present for what it is rather than trying to use the present as a means to get somewhere better in the future. I think that's a common trap, not only in meditation, but in life generally. Because then we're, we're, we're sort of missing something absolutely essential about the here and now. When you think of yourself in nature, do you have any quintessential moments or something that was like, picture yourself in nature of something <laughs> of, of a scene that, of yourself at some time in the past. Mm -hmm. What does nature mean to you? What is the environment like? Are there any scenes that for you are particularly meaningful? Um, it's a good question. I mean, there have been so many. Um, I suppose the best description is, is kind of a feeling of, of home. And, and, and it's not a feeling of, of loneliness or lack. You know, it's, it's like feeling part of a different kind of a community. You know, in urban settings, well, it's other people, but it's just sort of, say, meditating or just hanging out in a, in a, in a place like some of the, little nooks and crannies of our eco-dharma center, just feeling, you know, the trees, they just feel like brothers, like we're all part of the same life, we're on the same kind of path, and, and just, just feeling that sense of returning home. Are there particular, is there any one particular or some particular nooks or places? I'm curious, like the, the sensory experience of what you see, what mm. you smell, what you taste, what, what do you feel? Mm. In a particular, like one particular spot, right? Um, it could be at the center, or well, there are so many. Yeah, there are so many on our ecodharma center. I mean, you know, we have a little brook that babbles its way through. We have a couple really big, beautiful meadows that are full of wildflowers in in the summer. 
my own preference is to climb a couple of the hills and, and there are these little I don't know what you call them glades little meadows sort of tucked in inside a, a little stand of trees and that's where I kind of like to sort of just just hang out uh, I guess I don't remember so much about the smell of the flowers but it's more the colors and and the wind and um, yeah I guess that's it maybe too a bit more on the tactile you know just sort of settling in sometimes lying down sort of just feeling because you know it's so easy in everyday life to sort of you know get disconnected from our bodies and uh, uh, it gets get so much caught up basically visually and audioly and not sort of lo losing the the whole bodily you know for me a lot of the connection with nature is coming through sort of more deeply connecting with the body if that makes any sense what would you i mean you really make me the connection doesn't have to be there but the vipassana center where i did my retreats in massachusetts has a bubbling brook the Berry and, center maybe what the Berry center uh the this is the or? i mean it's a it's a goenka retreat um oh, okay so it'd be different right right and I, the first time i went there they hadn't yet built it up and so i was in a tent and i really like now you stay in a in a dorm and i'm like oh i missed the tent <laughs> but also so, there's something about walking yeah there was definitely a different experience in, of nature there that you brought me to and it's not the same place obviously but uh it was very vivid what you said what were what types of emotions do you feel then there if you don't mind my asking no no that's fine actually it's i think that's quite interesting because th there's a kind of a of a range and even a sometimes a certain kind of sequence so you know, when I'm first out there, my, my head is sort of full of projects and things I should be doing. And so a little bit of that and also kind of settling into a little bit of boredom. Uh, and, and again, I see that as a function of the other side of, you know, what I'm usually sort of busy doing. Um, so there'll be a little bit of boredom and then the boredom will just dissipate. And there's just this real sense of sort of equanimity and uh and homecoming that feels you know it there there is a kind of a joy there but it's 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 kind of a low a low key well-being mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah. yeah homecoming can you what do you mean by homecoming is it like a return to something i've been away from for a long time yes yeah, i mean very much so i mean i think it it fits uh perfectly with what you're saying how you know, I mean, in, in our normal lives, we're so, I mean, and this is very much, I think, a function of the urban environments that we spend almost all of our time in. It's, it encourages, it requires sort of means ends thinking. Everything is a means to go somewhere, to do something, to achieve something else. And we're always, and there's a certain sense of time that goes along with it that, um, you know, we're, we're always rushing. We're always trying to get a certain amount accomplished. As much as we can, uh, there, there, there's sort of a premium on that. Um, and the wonderful thing, or one of the wonderful things about being out in the natural world, is you know the trees, the flowers, the meadows, the stream. They're they're not playing that game. They're not trying to accomplish anything. Mm -hmm. They don't have a sense of lack. And so, part of it, a very important part of it, is is a very different experience and appreciation of time. You could almost call it what some of the mystics do, you know, the eternal now or the eternal present, where, you know, there's no coming and there's no going. There, there, there's no getting better. There's no getting worse. And just sort of dwelling in that is, and, you know, that's only possible because, you know, you're away from the computer and, uh, and the phone, well, ideally, and, you know, all of the all of the other things that otherwise we get so preoccupied with in our daily lives. I'm going to ask you something. What I was referring to about this process mm. is you talked about getting away and normal life mm. and the emotions of homecoming of um, you go out and first you got all these projects and then mm. that goes away and the emotions that you feel there based on those feelings and that experience, I invite you if you're up for it 
to think of something to do in normal life to manifest those feelings that um, with three, well, what I'm not saying is, can you think of something you do to help the environment? Everyone hears that, but that's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. It's to bring something from there to normal life. And with three constraints, if you, if you want to go for it, something you're not already doing, mm -hmm. something that you do yourself. So not helping others is great, but it's not to help others. It's not to get other people to do something. Mm -hmm. uh, and something that this isn't the goal, but at least has some feeling afterward, you have some feeling like I left it better than I found it. So there's some physical, not just reading a book or watching a documentary. There has to be some physical active element to it. And some people have been doing this in their lives. Some people haven't, but it's to come up with something to give you that in your day-to-day -day life. It could be once, it could be many times, or it could be forever, but it, um, but the goal is not to make mm -hmm. it big or to fix all the world's right. problems. Right. In fact, it's, right. it's explicitly not that. Right. But if you come up with something that I'd, I'd, you know, it usually takes a bit of going back and forth to like figure out what it would be, but then mm. to uh, invite you back and hear how it went. Mm. I want to give it a shot. When you say invite me back, you mean another, another. Uh... An episode if you're up for it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Although I also get very curious because I'd love hearing how these things go. So if you didn't want to do another episode, right. I'd still want to like have a phone call. Because I get very interested because of the experiences yeah. people have. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, well, let me say something now. Uh -huh. I mean, in, in a way, I'm, I'm going to need to think more. Something does come to mind. Um, but I also want to contextualize it. If I can just sort of go back and connect it with what I was just saying earlier. Uh -huh. uh, and, and, and we'll come back to what you said. But, um, you know, when I talk about going out in the natural world, it sounds like it's... Um, devaluing, you know, what I said about sort of urban life, kind of devaluing that as a kind of losing something. And and I don't see it that way at all. You know, it's not about, you know, this normal life, uh, urban is sort of is problematical, and I go back to the natural world just to, there's something real there that isn't real in the urban world sort of thing. For me, it's more that there's these two sides. And the greater challenge, and I would call it even the greater sort of spiritual challenge, is being fully aware, comfortable in both, understanding the relationship between the two, how it is. Like, like in the first chapter of the Tao Te Ching, it makes the point very clearly. It ta it's talking about this, and it's saying it's, it's when you let go of desires, or what I would say um, ends means activity, that you open up and experience this other dimension, this other side, which is so much easier to do, but it doesn't have to be done in the natural world. You know, it's possible here and now. It's just that it's so much easier there because there's fewer distractions and because everything around you is is sort of encouraging you to sort of join join and be with them in a certain kind of way. So, so what I'm saying is, the greater challenge is the integration of those two, bringing that other perspective into how we actually live day to day, moment by no moment in our normal everyday lives. I think that the way I think about the invitation that I offer here right. is to help bridge that. Right. And by focus, by starting with the person's, their motivation, not my instruction. Right. To right. See if I understand. So, let me just tell you what came to mind as you were saying that. Uh -huh. um, uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I live in a little town, or you could almost call it a hamlet, outside of Boulder. It's in Boulder County, but we have a lot of what's called open space. So there are some beautiful walks. And, you know, my main, my favorite uh, physical activity is, you know, to go on some long walks of several miles. But very occasionally... There's not that much litter, you know, and I'm thinking about New York, right? There's not that much litter, but sometimes, especially in the wake of COVID, you know, people don't want to pick stuff up. And sometimes I've wondered what I haven't been doing, but I, I'm now wondering is bringing a bag with me. And part of the problem is that there's no trash cans on the way, right? It's, it's, it's rural. Mm -hmm. So, but maybe bringing a bag and on the walk, uh, just I don't know if it's being more attentive 
but just more aware of um, things that I would normally not pay attention to because there's no good way to deal with them. If I can see myself as playing a role here in terms of sort of helping to clean up things. Right. I'm, I, and the other thing I would add to that, Josh, is um, essential to the bodhisattva path that I was talking about is earlier is non-attachment to results. It's like not just to do it because it's the right thing to do and, and not to think about the results. And, and I, I can see that fitting in quite nicely. You know, I'm taking a walk in a beautiful place. You know, I'm not thinking, oh, you know, what a great person I am because I'm picking up litter here. But you're just picking up the litter. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it, it's just quite natural. And then when you do get to a trash can, you just put it in there. And uh, anyway, that's the first thing that comes to mind to me. But I'm and I guess maybe because it's been in the back of my mind to some degree, uh, whether others might come to mind, uh, you know, following up on what you said. I, I, I don't know right now. Well, it's. I, it's running through my head on the checklist. It seems to fit the three criteria of something you're not already doing. I mean, you're doing the walking, but you're not doing the picking up litter. So that would be something right. new. Not not much, yeah. That you're doing it. And it seems to me that you would see this as leaving it better than you found it. Oh, yeah, for sure. And yeah. now I do have to check one thing. And I think this is the case. But um, sometimes people do something that they feel like – I think you already answered this, but I'll just make sure – some people do stuff and they feel like I'm supposed to do this and they're not doing it because mm -hmm. they want to. They're doing it because I should do it. Yeah. Right. But it sounds like what you were just saying, but you know your heart better than I do. Is that the case mm -hmm. for you? Is it, is it that you're doing something interesting for yourself or is it something that you feel obliged to? You know, it's, I mean, to answer you a little obliquely here, it's really important from a Buddhist, but not only from a Buddhist perspective, to do what we do out of love, mm -hmm. you know, not out of fear, not out of dread or depression or something, but out of love. Uh, you know, it's like loving the path, loving the earth. And that, I mean, it feels to me like a, a very kind of natural expression of that. Then unless you really want to explore something more, I say, let's, let's try this one. Yeah, I will. And I will. So then if I were to ask you in a, in a future call, how did it go? How long would you have to do it? Like how long, how many times would you do it? How long? Because I'd love to schedule a second conversation. Well, it's it's a little bit tricky because it's winter and, you know, there's some things going to happen. Although actually, yeah, it's it's hard to say. It's Sometimes walking is a little more difficult because of snow and ice. Mm -hmm. And if it were summer, it'd be a lot easier to say. Plus, I'm going to be doing some traveling uh, in February. Yeah, it's I guess what I'm saying is I don't know. But but I also want to say something else, Josh, that um, one of the implications of the Bodhisattva path to me is that the double practice includes social engagement. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, I, I think if we're not going to be hypocritical, it's really important for us when we look at the ecological crisis to start with ourselves, to think, you know, what are we doing as much as possible, reducing our own impact. So, you know, my wife and I, we have solar panels and a electric car, and we're zero scaping. You know, yeah, that that's important to do. But at the same time, uh, I also want to emphasize and add that you know we have economic and political structures that are also a really big part of the problem and. As, as much as I believe in personal transformation and doing what we can, I also don't want to fall into the fossil fuel propaganda that says, you know, the problem is our lifestyle and that the solution is, is to simply uh, reduce, be as sustainable as we can, because I think we need to do both. I guess what I'm saying is that ecosatva path is we need to do whatever we can individually to reduce our carbon footprint. But we also need to be aware that we need to connect with other people to challenge and engage with some of these uh, larger system issues. I thoroughly agree. And I think this is uh, echoes what we were saying before about necessary but not sufficient. Mm -hmm. Also, for this exercise or this commitment, mm -hmm. I always have to make clear, everyone, this this particular thing is not about 
helping the world. It's, I'm not saying it, it may do that, but I, mm. I always want to make, it's one of the things that's come, I'm kind of jumping the gun here for what will probably come out in the second conversation of how it went. But mm. for a lot of people, there are a lot of people, when I ask them something, it takes 30 minutes or an hour for them to just let go of, it has to scale. It has to be something that fixes everything. If I, if it, otherwise, it's not worth doing. And they feel like it must be deprivation. It must sacrifice. If they're not hurting, then it's not worth doing. And a lot of times on the far end of it, there, actually, there, for many people, there comes a moment where they say, oh, you mean I can just pick up litter while I go for a walk? <laughs> and suddenly it switches from what do I have to do to what do I get to do to, oh, this is, you, you just mean enjoy nature. What do I want to do? Yeah. What will I love doing? And you yeah. might, you, you're not saying that, but there's a lot of that. And one mm -hmm. of the big things that I'm trying to, to bring about through working with leaders and community people at the centers of communities and people who have that other people look to as role models to help them and, and people who could be role models in this area is I didn't act myself for so long because I felt like I got to take one for the team and I don't my sacrifice would be great for and then, then I have to divide that by 8 billion for the effect on the world well nothing's worth doing but now my view is I mean the reason I would disconnect my apartment from the electric grid is because everything I've done up until then smaller things all growing up into bigger things showed me joy. They like every single, you know, sometimes joy, sometimes other things, but always something, a rewarding feeling that makes me want to do the next thing. And, you know, my parents are like, why are you doing this? They don't quite get it. But the people who've done it, who've gone through this a couple times, you know, this is like, I often say it in corporate speak of a mindset shift followed by continual improvement. Mm -hmm. And after a few steps, if you don't have the mindset shift first, it doesn't feel like improvement. It, it feels like, oh, what more do I have to do? All right, I gave up meat. Now you want me to give up straws? I don't get it. <laughs> Whereas if after the mindset shift, it's, oh, that was, that was really, I really like that. What more can I do? It's a very different mindset. So, and in my experience, this actually leads people to the organization stuff because they're sharing joy mm -hmm. as opposed mm -hmm. to, forcing them to do this, which has a place. Mm -hmm. XR definitely, I feel like, is more of the protest and, you know, stop doing bad things. Very, very important. There's another, which I don't hear a lot from them, is this is really great. Like, you'll wish you had started earlier. So I'm, I'm kind of jumping the gun of, like, of what I, I believe that this process brings about. Mm. For many people... Maybe less so for you, but for many people, revelatory or or at least um, like a peek at the other side of, oh, there's something desirable here. Hmm. So I think that the fastest, most effective way to get to where we get organizations and institutions and governments acting is through enjoying it ourselves. And that mm -hmm. might mean letting go of worrying about them for now. But I think that's repeating. I think I'm repeating what you said in just different words. Well, yeah, and and I'm sort of pointing at the same thing when I'm talking about sort of ends means behavior. You know, it, I mean, I'm really struck by what the Buddha said about non-attachment to results and how essential that is on on the bodhisattva path. You know, you 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 do something because out of love because it feels right. They don't know what the result is going to be, and this and this applies also to working together you know, with groups like Extinction Rebellion or Congress, whatever. whatever. But, you know, do, doing the best you can because it feels right and then not being attached to the results. And at a certain point, we don't have complete control over that. And, and it's a very, and that is so, I guess what I'm trying to say is to emphasize what I was pointing at before, that that non-attachment to results can lead to a different way of experiencing time and therefore a different way of experiencing ourselves where it brings us back to the present moment. Just this, right here, right now, where, you know, feel, feeling the love, feeling the connection, wanting, you know, 
naturally yeah let's let's pick up this litter it it, it just feels kind of natural and uh rather than getting into some kind of head trip as you were describing where people are just seeing this as one small contributing cause they want it to be to some grand um, revolution or, or or transformation i mean i think at whatever level that non-attachment to results is a very important buddhist principle that i think is beyond buddhist it's it's spiritual in general uh, and it doesn't mean not doing the very best one can it doesn't mean not being strategic in terms of certain types of activities but basically just just doing it and um and and letting it unfold as as well as it can what you just said there in relation to picking up litter I, i've been picking up litter every day for years and hmm. people point out and including myself that it doesn't clean the world it doesn't decrease the amount of pollution <laughs> in the world it just moves it around and maybe mm -hmm. it'll be in a landfill a bit longer before it actually gets to the ocean but it still will get to the ocean and yet, mm -hmm. there's many effects besides that. Some personal, as you so I really want to hear what your experience is. And, and I mean, there is some effect of how it changes me and my behavior. I mean, mm -hmm. it certainly facilitates not buying packaged food because the more mm -hmm. packaging, most of it is is it'll be in in New York City. Most of it is is uh, packaging for food and what I call not food but doof, which is food backward, which is uh, Doritos and Gatorade. I don't call that food. <laughs> oh yeah. And and then there's a lot of Amazon and shipping and, and packaging stuff. Mm -hmm. And for me to do business with those places, it's like it's there's feelings of disgust. Too much of that. So I'm I'm very curious how the effect is for you of the doing, yeah. which is different than the contemplating before doing it. Yeah. I mean, it it's somewhat a situation. The situation here is somewhat different. I mean, this is rural, you know, these are nice woods, Boulder County. We're not going to have the same level of pollution. And even what pollution there is, you know, it, it doesn't tend to be so much fast food. And and I, and I should say that I've done some of this before, you know, picking up little bits and pieces, especially if I know that I'm going to be walking fairly soon to where there's a big trash can, you know. But actually bringing a bag and sort of being a little bit more consistent about this. Actually, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I'll have to see how my back copes, whether uh, I have any aches and pains there. But uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. And if you have aches and pains, that's the physical sensation. What is that? What's the psychic, emotional feeling? Well, well, I'm getting up there. So, you know, back, lower back problems... Uh, I've I've had them in the past. I you know yoga and such tends to keep them under uh, under control. So we'll just we'll see. I think there's different ways to pick up litter. So All right. So I let's say after we record, but before hanging up, let's schedule a second conversation. If it's in the spring, it's in the spring or later. Okay, uh, that might be best. Yeah, we'll talk again. Uh, anything to before wrapping up? Anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up, or any message to give to people? Well, at, at the very beginning, uh, when you were going through the intro, you mentioned a lecture that I often give. Actually, that's a little bit dated now, but a lecture I give called Healing Ecology. And I think there's an important point there uh, that is worth just mentioning in passing. You know, Please. I mean, for, my understanding of the Buddhist path is that, you know, at the heart, at the core of our dukkha, suffering, dissatisfaction, frustration is this delusion of a separate self, feeling separate from other people, feeling separate from the world. And the path is about letting go of that delusion of separation through meditation, for example, but also engagement. But what I'm struck by is that that traditional understanding of Buddhism, which focuses on our individual awakening, realizing our non-duality, our non-separation, it seems to me the ecological crisis is just a larger version of the same thing, that at the core of the problem is the collective species or civilizational delusion that we as a species are separate from the earth. You know, the earth may be our home, but it's not our mother. And if you just think about it for a few minutes, uh, it becomes quite preposterous. But some religions encourage this, and, you know, they've encouraged us to 
think about transcending and escaping this place. But I, but I think the the root of the ecological crisis will not be solved without this larger species realization that in a very deep sense we are part of the earth where our species is one of its manifestations or one of its experiments if you will but there's that kind of accommodation is necessary i mean even if we shift to fossil fuels if we still think of the earth as a source of from fossil fuels resources, I hope. i'm sorry you said shift to fossil fuels Oh, fos from, sorry. Uh -huh. Yeah. Even if we shift from fossil fuels, I mean, if we're still having this fundamental mindset that somehow we're separate, I think just like Buddhism says on the individual level, that basic dualism is haunted by a dissatisfaction. And, and I think collectively, too, the ecological crisis is, is a deeper spiritual crisis that is challenging us ultimately to awaken and to come to a new relationship with the earth now whether we're going to meet that crisis or how is another question but i think it that spiritual dimension is very much at the heart of it it's not just technological or economic or political yeah what you said there spoke to me and uh i hope to everybody it's gonna be very difficult for me not to continue but let's pick up i, I let's put that <laughs> on the one of the topics for when we talk next time sounds good David Lloyd, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I look forward to continuing it. Me too. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.